Welcome to the Supplement Engineer Podcast. My name is Robert Chinesky. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by one of the true OGs of the supplement industry. Uh, he's a marketer, he's a formulator, whiz kid, former VP, Gaspari Nutrition, and the president of Spry Tribe, Mr. Daniel Pierce. Dan, thank you for joining us today, man. How yeah, are you? I'm happy, I'm happy to be here, man. I, I really appreciate it. I've, we've had a few interactions over the past few years, but I was like, this is one of those kind of interviews that I've been wanting to get off the ground forever. And it just, it takes me to get, to get the things in order. I'm glad you could make it. Uh, we're recording this on a Saturday afternoon. So awesome. Thank you for making time on the weekend away from family, friends and all that other stuff. Um, but yeah, let's, let's dive right into it. What, uh, let's get your background. So people have heard of Gaspari. They know of all the other brands uh, with whom you work these days. We won't get into too many specifics of that at this point, but let's get your background story of how you got into the supplement industry in the first place, because you've been in around a long time, done a lot of cool things in the industry, but how did you even get here in the first place? Yeah, um, I was actually a member of bodybuilding.com and the forums uh, way back when they started, I believe, um, in the mid 2000s. Mm -hmm. And um, I built up a personality on there, um, created a blog on body space and actually became, I guess, one of the, I guess, the most sought after reviewer uh, by a lot of the larger brands. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of my reviews, what I would say, were more science based. Um, it wasn't just... Yeah you know, sensory input. It was literally kind of reviewing their formulas then reviewing the research behind it and um, just giving my honest opinion, uh, whether good or bad. Um, and, you know, we didn't really realize it at the time, but those forums were extremely influential in the industry. So when I would give a bad review, it would actually start affecting revenue of brands in a very negative manner. Um, you know, for instance, one of them was Syntrax, who later sued bodybuilding.com. And we actually created a lot of, uh, how should I say, case law uh, based off based off that. Mm -hmm. um, but then there would be positive reviews. And um, yeah, so that's that's how I sort of got a name in the industry. Mm -hmm. And then um, I think maybe one of the differences between myself and some of the other reviewers is I was actually a, a competitive bodybuilder. So I actually kind of looked the part too which yeah. kind of set me apart. And then, um, you know, truthfully, I wanted to get more involved in the industry. So I actually pitched two brands on how to, I guess, work the guerrilla marketing and digital marketing programs. And you have to remember, this was kind of, you know, 2006, 2007, before, you know, things like Instagram had really taken off, before YouTube had really taken off. Mm -hmm. um, you know, TikTok didn't even exist. So back then it was, it was a really big deal to really start controlling share a voice and mm -hmm. um you know my you know my educational background since it was actually in computer science we were actually able to apply some pretty advanced techniques which truthfully i use today with with a lot of the brands i work with as well that's um, what i was going to see is like how did you even get in like what was your your background was in computer science and that so that's yeah so that's tr truthfully how i got involved i guess on the forums was actually being bored while working in grad school. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I was a computer science uh, um, uh, major in undergrad, and then I went on to graduate school, and actually AI was actually my focus in graduate studies. But I spent a lot of time working in an overnight computer lab for students, so I had a lot of extra time on my hands, you know, because there's yeah. not really too many, or I'd say, kids coming in and, you know, working at 1 a.m. in the morning. And I worked graveyard shift. So that gave me a lot of extra time, and that's... Mm -hmm. That's really, you know, how I started to, I guess, get involved in, in just being obnoxious on bodybuilding.com, um, you know, for better or for worse. 
And um, yeah, so like that, there really wasn't a crossover. It was really kind of a, a just an interest in, you know, supplementation. You know, I was, yeah. you know, I was a, an athlete before college. In college, I got into bodybuilding. So a lot of that interest came as a result of just trying to better myself. But I realized I had a different perspective than a lot of consumers. And, you know, there was a place to have a voice, which was bodybuilding.com. Yeah. Fascinating. What do you think um, of the current state of the bodybuilding.com forms? Because that was kind of how I got my first little dabbling in there. Like, like you did, you started doing product reviews and you would meet interaction with some of the, the board reps and then you become a brand rep on the form. Then you meet the owners and you kind of it snowballs from there. But what do you think of, I guess, the downfall of the bodybuilding forms just in general? Because BB.com is gone, Anabolic Minds, not gone, but they're nowhere near what they were early, mid-2000s. What sort of ruined it was a lot of litigation, truthfully. We had, um, there were quite a few lawsuits that actually stemmed from interactions of brands and debate on bodybuilding.com. You know, I remember the good old days where, um, you know, I would argue, for instance, with the owner of USP Labs. Jacob Geisler. I truthfully, I was one of the few first people to actually call him out for mislabeling well before the feds caught up with them. And, you know, it would get super heated and it was very public. And, um, you know, all of a sudden there would be phone calls, there would be lawyers involved and it, it would get pretty bad. But I think, I think a lot of it had to do with litigation. I mean, mm -hmm. the unfortunate part was there was a lot of really good debate on there. I mean, we had, for instance, um, you know, someone who I would, I would have considered maybe a foe back then, but, you know, as, as things evolve, um, you know, we became uh, definitely have respect for each other and, and, and friendly, which is Patrick Arnold, right? Yeah. Probably one of the most brilliant minds I would consider that ever existed in the supplement industry. And we would debate, you know, you would have the guy who invented Superdraw, you know, debating on the forums. We had, you know, Bruce Neller who brought Halodraw and a lot of other different compounds to market and great formulations arguing on there. We had, uh, you know, Ron Kramer and, and uh, I believe his name is Alex, who invented nitrates on their debating. So it was a lot of really good active debate, which I, I think in today's sort of podcast, social media, like sort of ecosystem, you don't have a lot of active debate. We have a lot of active talking at audiences, but we don't have a lot of debate. And I think, you know, yeah, it's, 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 it's something that's missing that I would like to see come back. Um, Agreed. But that's what I, I, I would like to lay a lot of this blame, even pretty much at like Facebook and Instagram, just the social media thing, because it's now before like the forums. It was great. You could have a long, lengthy, detailed discussion. It was respectful and it would get heated. But now it's it's where it's to the point where you go on Facebook or Instagram. I don't like what they said. I'm going to block them or I'm just going to put this really you know snarky, snippy. You know, I see that. Then you see the comments sort of go at it and then people yeah. get tagged in. But it's really not. It, it's not how it used to be. And I think, you know, I, I would blame litigation, but it's just the evolution of, I guess, social media itself, because the forum dynamic was what I would say a, a pretty primitive form of social media and a way to engage with people. Now yeah. it's much different. Different. I think the other thing is bodybuilding.com's forums weren't run algorithmically like mm -hmm. social media is. So yeah. social media, much different now. So how those debates, how you get in the algorithm, it's, it is somewhat of a function of how should I say, like the engagement on the post and stuff, mm -hmm. but it's, it's, again, it's not like how forums operate. Yeah. Yeah. I miss those kind of days. And it just, it seemed like there was like, the, there was a community, it was people policed each other instead of you had somebody like just 
they had the mods there, which kind of ensured that there was no shenanigans or selfless, like shameless brand self-promotion and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And the people that were on there that took the time, like, cause you had to log in, then you had to put a post, then you had to like review it, then verify and do all this. Like there were a couple of layers here and it seems like those kind of layers have been removed and the, the easier access it is to publish something now, it seems like there's a concomitant decrease in the amount of intelligent responses in discourse and civil yes. discourse that goes in there when you remove those barriers to entry. Yeah, no, it is. And I think part of, you know, with at bodybuilding.com, we would get pretty deep into the science, mm-hmm. right? We would get, especially on the review side, it yeah. would go really deep. If you didn't have good substantiation, if you didn't, if you had gaps, um, if, if it really wasn't research-based, people would really go at it and call you out on it. Yeah. Now in the supplement review world, you know, um, it's really not, I, 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 like it's, it's kind of embarrassing. And I'm probably going to piss some people off by saying this, but, you know, getting on Instagram or YouTube and tasting something and then saying how it's amazing something to me, that's not a review, right? That's not really going into the science or whatever. And it's just not, or I think the newest thing now is, and I'm, I'm walking a weird line here, but it's kind of like whoever has the highest dose and the most branded ingredients is now kind of what I would say talked about a lot in the, in the supplement review world. And inherently there's gaps with that too, because, you know, just a bunch of branded ingredients and in, in higher doses and higher doses and higher doses, it doesn't necessarily mean innovation or it's, it's better. It just means a brand is willing to take less margin and probably lack some other things on the marketing side. So I think, you know, these days it's just the, the, it, it has gotten watered down a bit. Um, and I think, you know, if, if, if people were challenged more, um, you know, we would probably see, I think, people sharpening their pencils a little bit more before they start reviewing products. And, 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 and hopefully the people actually watching this or watching them would have a higher standard for what a good, good review or a bad review is. Yeah. And I, I, that's where I, I struggle with some things, too, or just to understand the, the average consumers that are tuning into these supplement reviews, because. Like you, I love to nerd out over the ingredients and get down into the science. And I mean, that's kind of one of the whole reasons I got into this industry in the first place. It's just a passion of wanting to understand how these little things tick these different receptors in our body and cause this cascade of different reactions and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you start trying to distill all that down to the average consumer. And a lot of the time, like a significant purchasing proportion of the population, they just glaze over and they just say, does it taste like, and do I feel the tingles? And it just, at that point, it, yep. it feels like you're beating your head against a brick wall to a certain extent. Yep. So it's trying to strike a balance. And it seems like the people that don't get into the science get more traction than the people that do get into the science. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, I think um, it, it is a very real thing. And I think what, how I say this, it's like when, when you're designing a product um, it's like, what is your goal? Right. I know for for me, when I'm when I'm in 100 percent the driver's seat of a formulation, mm-hmm. the goal is to have maximum impact, maximum benefit for the purchase for the for the person that's purchasing the product, the consumer. Right. Yeah. That that is a much different statement than saying I'm going to make this to be the absolute best based off doses X, Y and Z. And I think that's where part of the industry is going wrong. And I don't think that they even realize where they're going wrong with that. Um, and it, it's created what I would call kind of the arms race when it comes to formulation, which is, again, higher doses, more branded ingredients, 
And, you know, back in the day uh, when I was working with Bruce, you know, we would actually build clinical trials around our products that were IRB reviewed, you know, done by a separate CRO that we managed. And so we were actually trying to innovate, building things that would have maximum impact based off, you know, actual endpoints like, you know, increasing one rep max, increasing endurance, increasing, you know, uh, you know, sensory stimulation, uh, you know, uh, recall for, you know, um, you know, for things, I guess that would, would um, you know, increase like increased brain output. And I think now it's just, we're relying too much on branded ingredient research, which truthfully has a ton of holes in it, if you really read some of it. So I think, so this arms race right now, it, it, in my opinion, it is, it is somewhat killing innovation mm-hmm. and it is, I don't really, I don't think brands really understand. Um, I would say the ones that participate in it, how much, how much further they would get if they actually sort of step back and redesign the framework in which they formulate. Right. Um, you know, but again, it's the arm race, the people that are winning the arms race right now are the ingredient suppliers. Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. It's, let's say, it's, you know, five, six years ago, it was an arms race to just have the overall biggest scoop pre-workout. So then we, you know, it was used to, we used to the little micro dose, like five grams, like BPI, one MR kind of, or yeah. C4, like little five, seven gram scoops. Then somebody came out with a 15 gram scoop then 20 gram scoop. And then that kind of leveled off at about 20 grams. And then there was the arms race for caffeine where we went 300, 350, 400, you know, 600, 700 in a scoop and now it's the citrulline arms race is, is yep. the current flavor of the month and they just there was a, a study i was reviewing yesterday that i sent out in my, my little weekly newsletter blast about 10 grams of citrulline that they tested in 67 year olds that were obese and i thought all right well this is just going to add more fuel to the fire for saying we need to have 10 grams of citrulline as the de facto this is the only effective dose and it's just that's not the truth it's just no, it's not. And you see, like, there's there's some studies that are a little bit higher than that. And it actually shows it has diminishing returns. Right. I think, you know, that's that's where, like, I think sometimes the science is just ignored. Or it's just not even known. Um, you know, I know my process now, my process back in the day, mm-hmm. it was really it was really data-driven, right? You know, understanding what people really want and then trying to align ingredients, you know, that would sort of fit that mold. Um, and I think, you know, for instance, I believe Super Pump Max was one of the first brands to sort of inversely show, like, you know, against USP Labs, Jacked, and a few others, like, you know, here you have this little scoop versus a big scoop. And like, we, we kind of created that, like, that dilemma, so to speak, because they went after us and basically said, you have this scoop full of a lot of dog shit. And then we have this little thing and ours feels better. And truthfully, they they won that race, and that's mm-hmm. that's why we evolved in the Super Pump Max. But when we did that, you know, we made it a point to create something that had, you know, that we knew would show great results when we ran clinical trials on it, which we did. Yeah. And we also introduced a lot of innovation to do that. And I think it's a little bit harder these days. But you know, that product I believe introduced eight new ingredients to sports nutrition. Right. It introduced glycerophosphates. It introduced actually pure citrulline It introduced glutathione. It introduced um, ornithine aspartate and a bunch of others. And I think, you know, these days, instead of trying to innovate, a lot of formulators just get caught up in trying to up their competition. Mm-hmm. And um, as opposed to really resetting and thinking like, OK, like, will someone get a great effect from this? What do I need to achieve that? And then how am I going to differentiate based off my formula 
and not and not necessarily like a dose level. And, I, and when I say by a formula, like what endpoints am I moving, right? Yeah. Will this actually increase strength over the basic ingredients? Will this actually increase endurance or whatever else? And I think that's what's really missing. And, and the reason why it's missing is because brands have gotten caught up in this arms race of more doses. They, they actually can't afford clinical research anymore. And they're outsourcing it to the branded ingredient suppliers who then sell those same ingredients to all their competitors using the same signs. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's quite the dilemma these days. And I, I, I'm not sure if, if a lot of brands are really waking up to that. I, at least in the sports nutrition niche, like subset of the overall supplement industry, I don't think so yet. I mean, I, I just, it seems like you you've mentioned a couple of times, it's the also brand thing. We're going to copycat or I see, this brand's going to put three grams of tyrosine in. I'm going to put in five grams plus eight grams of citrulline. So I'm going to have a bigger scoop. I'm going to put in three branded ingredients alongside of it. And yeah, sure. You're a formulator. You've put together a thing because you've taken somebody's formula. You've upped their dosages and added one or two ingredients. That, that doesn't mean anything. Do you actually understand at like the, the physiological cellular level, what's going on with all of this stuff in the body? And it's just, there's a, a succinct lack of that just across. Like no, no, there, there, across there the is, there is. I mean, you know, one of my hallmarks in formulation, like when I'm actually involved in something, is trying to introduce some sort of new ingredient every time I'm part of a formulation team, right? And it's it's not easy, but it, it can be done. And mm -hmm. But it does take actually researching it. Sometimes it, it requires you, you know, creating an ingredient or repurposing ingredient from major food and putting it back, you know, into like a sports nutrition supplement. So mm -hmm. like these days, you know, for instance, glycer pump, is all the rage, right? And the sort of previous version of that was Hydromax. And, but Hydromax really wasn't stable. You know, I actually was the one who actually introduced those research researchers to Glanvia to, I guess, brand Hydromax and bring it to market. But at the same time, I didn't necessarily like the science of Hydromax because, you know, if you read the glycerol studies, okay, it, it actually takes a lot of glycerol to elicit hyperhydration in certain you know, yeah, I've remarked on that several times. Every time there's a new I also, size, I also didn't necessarily like the amount of silica that's in it because silica kind of, in my opinion, is not really good for hydration, okay? Mm -hmm. Especially when using gram doses. And this is another thing that may get me in trouble is that pretty much most brands using that much silica are actually, um, uh, how should I say, going against FDA regulations that actually state how much silica you can have in a food product. But that's a whole other debate. Um, so we create, so at the same time that that was going on, I said, well, look, can we do something better? So we had something called glycerol triacetate, which is called triacetin. And it's basically a glycerol, um, molecule attached to three acetate molecules. And it has the effects of glycerol with some buffering. And mm -hmm. we basically used, um, certain, um, certain forms of cyclic dextrins and we were able to make a powder form of it. And we introduced it in a product called SuperDrive. So what we were able to do is not use silica. We we're able to introduce a powdered form of glycerol in a product that had some buffering effect and it was actually innovative. Mm -hmm. If you look up triacetin, it is widely used, okay? It's just not used in our world. Um, but I believe Coke has a patent on it, so be careful with the, with the dose amount. But, um, you know, that was innovation, right? We tried. Uh, truthfully, it was not really stable in powder after a few months and, and uh, completely messed up a product. But at the end of the day, we tried, right? right? We tried to be innovative. And it was actually based off of sound research fundamentals 
um, as opposed to, you know, just, just copying the next guy. And, you know, I think that's, again, I don't, I don't see a lot of trying when it, mm -hmm. when it comes to that these days. Um, and it's, as I said, like it, it can be done, right? Um, you know, even formulation projects that I've been involved in the last few years, we're still able to introduce new ingredients. It just, you know, I think there, there has to be a shift in mindset and saying like, look, you know, no offense to compound solutions. I know Matt Tillow very well, but mm -hmm. you're selling your ingredients to all of my competitors, right? Yeah. Like, you know, so I have to sort of take a step back and say, okay, what else is there? You know, who are the guys not selling to all my, to all my suppliers or, or yeah. all my competitors? And I think, um, you know, I just don't see a lot of that. I think some formulators these days, you know, because they have that relationship, they think that that's their conduit to innovation. When, when truthfully the conduits of innovation, you know, for instance, PubMed and NIH, it actually has an open API for its research. So if you know how to bring in big data and manipulate it and start aligning it with like, for instance, things that have high share of voice on Google, YouTube, or Amazon, and you start aligning those like studied endpoints with certain like natural language processing methods, you can start fusing things together and find innovation. Cool. That is something though that none of these ingredient suppliers are doing. Truthfully, most brands don't even do, right? But that's where you really start combining technology with existing databases. Yeah. I don't have to go to these ingredient suppliers that are talking to all my competitors. So, right. so that, that's how, you know, truthfully, I started infusing what I would say big data computer science methods with research and trying to, you know, basically digest things down to, to find, you know, potential ingredients that are innovative. Fascinating. Okay. So you were doing this when you were on the, the BB.com forms and then was this, I was did doing you transition this, from that to oh, Gasparri? I was doing this at Gasparri Nutrition. Um, okay. At Gasparri Nutrition, and I can talk about this now. You know, some of the secret sauce that we had back then was, you know, we had very powerful social listening tools, right, that we developed in-house that have since been, um, you know, a lot of companies come out with them like Sprout Social or Radiant 6 or these other other big listening tools. Yeah. But we, we had those listening tools and we basically monitored everything online. We also use some, I also use some of those tools to pull in big data. So for instance, um, ornithine aspartate, right? Mm -hmm. like, it would be very hard to find, okay, if you were just, it was, it was basically used for people that had encephalitis and it was studies of a drug in Japan, mm -hmm. right? And, um, you know, so I was trying to find something that would help lower ammonia because ammonia builds up while you're working out and, and, and doing anaerobic workouts. And, you know, so started plugging in certain parameters and started looking at, you know, things that would amino acids that would help augment or lower ammonia during exercise. Okay. Kind of, there was a miss there, right? Because there really wasn't, it wasn't studied for endurance at the time, but then I'm like, okay, what are disease states that have higher ammonia? Okay. Encephalitis was one of them. Okay. And then that's how I was able to actually find that in the Japanese research. And yeah, and yeah, then we put it in a super pump max. Yeah, see, shit like that. Yeah. I can think of maybe one or two other people that may do something along those lines. But that just, it, that's it, 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 it's, it's great because um, 
you know, we preceded the actual research in athletes. I think there have been ornithine aspartate studies since, but we were five years ahead, yeah. right? So, for instance, the glutathione citrulline combination that Kyohaku patented, right? Mm -hmm. We use that combination in Super Pump Max before they did their clinical. That product actually influenced their clinical, then influenced their their patent essentially that they're selling everybody now. So I think. You know, there are advanced methods. It's just, mm -hmm. I think, look, anyone that's ever had a successful formulation or worked for a successful brand has a big ego, right? Like, if you read some of my old posts on bodybuilding.com, you're like, wow, what an asshole, right? You know, we went on to win a lot of bodybuilding.com awards, you know, GNC awards, awards mm -hmm. with Popeyes. I mean, every possible supplement award that you could possibly get for a formulation I've, I've actually achieved. Right. But at, at some point you have to sort of step back and take the ego out of it and say, man, I have to sort of get out of this sphere of influence because the network effects like can just influence you the wrong way. Yeah. Right. And, and, and thinking what's innovative and what's, what's popular, this and that. And when you remove yourself from that, you actually start digging into real data. Mm -hmm. That's when you can, really have some true innovation and that's where things like you know uh cyclic dextrin you know um mm -hmm. came into play right another yeah. again that was another what i would say um data mining gold mine you know so as a formulator i was the first to introduce it to in, in formulation in north america and that's where glycofuse came out right but again that was mining japanese research at the time using some of the same methods i just talked about yeah. and uh you know, so a lot of a lot of great things came from that. And I think, you know, that's why I think over time I've been able to have a lot of firsts, um, you know, when it comes to ingredient combinations and or just ingredients themselves. How let's get a little bit of an inside look at the the glory days of Gaspari, mm -hmm. if you don't mind going into that. What was yeah. the I guess the interactions between you, Bruce and Rich? Did Rich just kind of say, hey, guys, y'all go be kids in the candy store? whatever you want to do. And like, did he kind of give the carte blanche for the formulations? Cause he's the like thing, the, the, the name face about, and stuff like that. Yeah. No, the great thing about Rich is, is he let us do what we wanted, you know? And that was, that was what I think part of the success. He was a smart enough CEO at the time to let these like eggheads as he used to call us like go ham, present a concept. Okay. A formulation concept, but also a story, right? Like the story behind the product, I think, is so important of why we're developing it and what we're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And we would present you know, the clinical budget. Was it patentable or not? And, 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 and he'd be like, cool, let's put it in a presentation and see if GNC or vitamin shop wants it mm -hmm. or bodybuilding.com, you know, so that, that's how, um, you know, and, and he would let me present to the retailers. So that's, so I was usually point man on selling some of this stuff in, which was awesome. Um, Cause we would blow them away right? With the research and, and what we were trying to do. Um, but the, I think, you know, the, the, I guess the relationship of Bruce and I is, you know, Bruce's was the reason why I got involved in, in Gaspar Nutrition because of this relationship that we had developed on the forums, mm -hmm. right? And, um, you know, Bruce, um, you know, brilliant guy, right? And he, you know, he went away for a little bit because he was a little too smart for his own good. Um, and so I helped him uh, with a lot of his research while he was on the inside. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we, we had co-authored a few patents. 
Um, but at the same time, I, I brought a concept to him and I said, hey, man, I think this would be really cool for a fat burner if we use these certain thyronal components, combine it with um, a new ingredient at the time, which is called vucoxanthin, which was, uh, could serve as a brown adipose tissue uh, coupler and add some stimulants. I think we can develop a really cool fat burner. And he's like, cool, put it together. So that was my first formulation was just like, cool, put it together. So you, um, you brought Fugazanthin to market too? Uh, yes, we were the first in sports. Yeah. Say, Damn, that's, there's, cause there's a, that's one of the ingredients I start to use and a couple of different uh, fat burners I've used these days. And I never knew where it actually originated from. I've seen it in a couple of different products and yeah, that was, research rabbit holes. We were the first like in sports that. nutrition. And then like right around the same time we did it, another brand, like a, not a sports nutrition brand, mm-hmm. um, they launched it in vitamin shop as well. But they launched it as a single overpriced ingredient. <laughs> and we had it in this huge, you know, this 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 huge like monster uh, fat burning formula. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think, you know, Bruce is the one who, how should I say, um, basically vouched for me with Rich and said, this guy really knows his shit. Um, and, you know, so that's how I got my foot in the door um, in terms of the formulation side, because I was there on the digital marketing side, but you know, there was another, how should I say, uh, bag of tricks. And um, yeah, so that was my, mitotropin was my first formulation. Um, again, we introduced a lot of ingredients at the time. I think, uh, you know, we introduced 3.5 and 3.3 three, uh, prime uh, diethylthyronines, again, which at the time had never even been researched in humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and those are like what I would say the third and fourth order downstream metabolites of, uh, yeah, the thyroid hormones. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, we used a lot of cool science and, and, um, and, and that, and that's, that's, that's kind of how it went, you know, truthfully, we were also looking at what I would say next generation hormones. Um, I think what differentiated, you know, rich obviously got to start because of the, of the, what I would say the pro steroid and hormone yeah. era. But what he did right um, was actually clinically studying some of them. You know, for instance, Novadex and ATD. We also had a, um, uh, I forget the, the name of the compound. It was, uh, I forget what it was. But we also did, we did small pilot studies. And then we also licensed 6OXO from Patrick Arnold, who also had conducted clinical trials. Um, so we were looking at next generation things. And this could probably be like maybe a discussion for another podcast is the hormones that were developed and that never made it actually to market because we had things that what I would say were, I, we would consider Deshaies compliant. We had arguments for that, um, you know, would, would probably really kick ass, uh, would have kicked ass, but would kick ass even, even nowadays, you know, and, you know, we, we had a, we had a pretty cool process. I think, um, truthfully where some things went sideways at Gasparri Nutrition is we, grew way too fast. Um, you know, we, we went from sub 10 million to over 80 million in revenue in less than four years, went from a handful of countries to over 115 countries. And, you know, if you know anything about the regulatory side of the business, especially international regulatory, it, it can really chew things up. Um, you know, so it, it just, it grew too fast. Egos grew too fast you know, contracts grew too fast and it, it, it kind of, it sucks how things ended up because, you know, I, I would say Bruce and I, we, we sort of had a bad breakup. Um, you know, but now that I look back on it, it was kind of, wasn't his fault. Kind of wasn't my fault. It was kind of just, we were kind of in a turbulent 
brand that was yeah. just going off the, the, the tracks yeah. at 100 miles an hour. Yeah. So fascinating. With uh, so obviously you're in this in this stage of formulation. You're the compound solutions, new live nutrition torn, all these big ingredient houses that are bringing ingredients to market now. They weren't as common ubiquitous as they are. It seems like every every other week we're getting some new branded ingredient on the market. And right. which, which there's attached a small little pilot study. Two things I'd like to get your insight on are what did y'all, what goes into actually getting one of these pilot trials off the ground and working with a CRO? And then second, wh what is the burden of proof you need to see before you even consider an ingredient going into a formula? Let's say it doesn't have uh, much human data. So Turkesterone is the hot little trick right now in the industry and everybody in their grandma is coming out with a turkesterone supplement in some shape, form or other. So would that pass the Daniel Pierce barrier to entry for inclusion in a, in a pre-workout or I'm not pre-workout, a uh, uh, supplement? So there were different phases of Gasparian nutrition. I would say the pre-GMP mm -hmm. and then the GMP, okay, version. And and between those times, there were like what I would say different levels of liability and exposure. So, you know, turkesterone, ironically, you guys bring it up, or you brought it up. It, it was actually in Super Pump 250, allegedly, right? And then we got called out because the, the person testing it couldn't actually find it in the formula. And they had the only analytical standard for it that existed in the world. They actually had developed it, huh. you know, so... So what I would say pre-GMP, you know, it was kind of like the wild, wild west. Like, could you develop a Deshaya argument and basically say this existed in nature in this certain amount that could be found in the food supply? Yeah. If it could, you know, we would, it would go in a formula. Right. Um, and and it, it was the wild, wild west. You had compounds that, you know... Um, you know, this wasn't just necessarily Gasparian nutrition, but would appear in, I don't know if you ever heard of Vita's Anabolic and Androgens. It's probably one of the most influential books in sports nutrition that no one really knows about. And, you know, guys would find something that had a good anabolic to androgenic ratio. Can we have it synthesized? Um, let's try it. And that's where Superdraw came about. Okay. Uh, that's where... Um, what do I say? Uh, man, I can't even remember some of the names, but that's where that came about. Now, was that tested in human clinical trials before uh, it came out? Um, actually, in the form of dimethazine, it was, mm -hmm. right? But that's that's a completely different compound. It's two super draws connected by an azine compound, uh, uh, basically uh, bond in the middle. And But yeah, I mean, there really wasn't one, okay? Where we would... Where we would um, so as we start to go into the GMP era where you're held accountable for testing and yeah. quality assurance, that's where um, I would say the DeShea arguments had to become more bulletproof, okay? Because there was actually, um, you know, how should I say, references, okay, uh, mm -hmm. for what that would mean. The FDA would, would start getting more clear and clearer and clearer with their perspective of things. So as that did, yeah, we, we, we would start to level up. We would look at um, certain compounds if they had clinical research, if they had, um, you know, for instance, if, if, you know, like where was the LD50 and, you know, um, certain species, would that carry over into humans and what those mm -hmm. calculations were? So actually a lot went into it. And then we would sort of 
what endpoint endpoints do we want to move? And then we would do a five to 10 person quickie, you know, um, pilot study using a, a CRO that again, with accredited MDs, physicians, sports nutritionists, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, just vetted researchers. Right. So it, it, you know, that was sort of, I would say post GMP, Gasperi <laughs> nutrition. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was a much different, I guess, uh, you know, just, um, level of, of, of discernment that we would give them. Yeah, that makes sense. One of the things while we're on the topic of the, the CROs and for the uh, listeners that may not have an idea what we're talking about, contracted research organization. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So basically a lab that you can go and you contract them and they'll, we'll do the, the exercise trial or cognitive tests on whatever ingredient you're wanting to test. A yeah. um, yeah. couple of things I want to get into on that front. What's a rough cost for that, first of all, and then we can jump off from there well, uh, for one of those trials. Costs always come from the number of endpoints that you want to study. Um, you know, one that I've worked with recently is the Human Performance Lab at Rutgers on mm -hmm. some IP that I've been developing. And, you know, looking at very specific endpoints, um, it could cost anywhere from, let's say, nine to fifteen thousand dollars for something that's very small mm -hmm. and doesn't have a lot of endpoints but you can't you can't skip irb review like approval which is uh, an actual sanctioning body will actually review the construct of the study before it's mm -hmm. even allowed to be done at a university yeah. okay and you know not all cro's are affiliated with universities so to speak Mm -hmm. um, but most universities, I should say not most universities, but many universities have a human performance like research laboratory that you could do these things at. You know, Baylor University is one that comes to mind. Rutgers mm -hmm. University is another one that comes to mind. I believe uh, Ohio State has one. Yeah, um, I think Arkansas and UNC do as well. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, there's there's ways, there's, there's plenty of ways to do it for sure. Yeah. Um, with that, a common complaint that comes out either from researchers, people that just enjoy supplements and that are skeptical of supplements in general. Are there, they'll look at a study and they say, oh, well, this was funded by a supplement company or this was funded by the, the ingredient house. They say, therefore, we can't trust this study. At the same time, I understand that to a certain extent, but the money and the materials have to come from somewhere. The FDA, the NIH aren't handing out six-figure grants for people to go test and see how much creatine nitrate they can take to no. increase their bench press or their hypertrophy results or something. Mm -hmm. So how do we communicate that to the consumers or just as a brand say, Hey, we're, we, the money's got to come from somewhere. I think, um, I don't, I think you have to take a step back and not necessarily see who's funding it, but actually look at the construct construct of the study and seeing like, what are they actually measuring? Yeah. Right. Um, you know, there's some branded ingredients that I, I'll leave nameless, nameless now. Come but on, you, name them, name them. <laughs> but you look at the endpoints that they're measuring, and it's like, um, you know, like a 500% increase in like, you know, nitric oxide, um, you know, output. And it's like, but the, it, it like, when you actually look at like, would that have a physiological effect? It won't, right? right. Then you look at like the nitrate studies and the results are off, off the charts. A lot of it was was funded by by the owners or associated brands, and it's like you can't question it. And then the efficacy of the ingredients themselves, just the sensory effect when you get them, like they're amazing. You know, I used to be one of the biggest, how should I say, critics of nitrates when they first came out because mm -hmm. they didn't necessarily have the level of research they have now, right? Yeah. And I was wrong, 
right? And then as that started coming out, I was like, fuck, man, this shit really works. And yeah, who cares if, you know, Cellucor funded one of the studies or this other brand funded it? It works. It's legit. It's not a, a legit research lab. It's done with legit researchers. So I think we're, we're customers have to, I, I don't know, they have to be, be able to maybe read a study before they can really judge a study. And I, I see the same thing with, um, with QA and lab testing, right? And mm-hmm. I'm not going to name brands, but I've actually seen brands have their influencers put out like certificates of analysis that show that the, 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 the compound or the, the product didn't meet label claim, right? It's off, yeah. off by a gram or familigrams. And they're actually saying, see, we meet label claim. And customers don't even, can't even read it themselves and realize that that person's full of shit. And they don't even know that they're full of shit. Yeah, they just right? it up. I've seen the same thing with some of the loudest brands about quality control put out, you know, uh, certificates of analysis on their protein. And it was actually off a few grams and it's, it's a supplement facts panel. So it actually, actually, actually has to meet or exceed label claim. Right. And, and they actually got a, um, you know, one of these review sites, a certification for it. And I was like, holy shit, no one's catching this. And, you know, so I think people have to be humble and, and, and sort of say, okay, maybe I don't know everything. I need to learn a little bit. And maybe f- some of the brands I'm learning from maybe aren't, um, I'll say this, the brands with the best quality assurance in the industry don't talk about it. Why? Because it's just something they do. It's just their standard, right? Some of the loudest brands about quality control and testing have a lot of flaws. Uh, no, I'll leave it at that. Good to know. Good <laughs> to know. Um, on the, that could be a whole other podcast, by the way, if you want to say it again. It could be a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this might be the first in a series of uh, interviews with you. <laughs> well, here, here's a prime example, right? And I, I will, I will name a brand. All right, um, and I'm not trying to pick on them. It's just an observation, right? I saw a retailer, okay, put up. A supplement facts panel. This was actually natural body, right? Great guys. Put up a supplement facts panel for like a pro. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I was reading it and I'm like, that supplement facts panel has a lot of errors, right? They're calling certain amino acids, essential amino acids when they weren't. Um, some declarations were off, um, you know? And so when, when you're actually trained in like uh, label law, okay, which yeah. I, on, on the nutrition side and the supplement side, and you start to see that, right? And you, it's, it incenses you because you realize none of these people that are putting themselves out as supplement experts, experts in this field, this field, this field, don't notice it, but it's right there if you actually know the regulations. Yeah. I see a lot of that. A lot of that, I mean, I'm usually, every once in a while, I'll just come in and like snipe and be like, yeah, there's this air here, here, here. And then I, I just sort of, vaporized because i don't want to like get in trouble um but i see it all the time right i mean we'll take it a step further and and and, um a brand that um claims to have some of the best quality control out there launched a product um and the ingredient had not been certified kosher yet the main ingredient but they put it out as kosher right just because they didn't do their due diligence. The same brand also makes a lot of non-GMO claims and nothing has ever been verified, okay? And 
you know, and, and, but again, you don't know that unless you really know the ingredients, really know the suppliers and really know how QA works. Right. So I see a lot of this. I'm usually quiet about it, um, yeah. but it's out there. And that's why I say like the brands with the best quality control out there, they just don't talk about it. Right. Right. Um, you know, brands made it SQF level, you know, two manufacturers. Most of the people watching this have no idea what level of quality, um, you know, control or assurance that that is. And it's insane. Right. And you, you never hear it talked about. And I think that carries over to a lot of other aspects of just the supplement industry and just humanity in general. So people that are actually doing some cool shit with formulas, you don't hear them going out saying, I'm a game changing formulator. I'm a titan of industry. I'm an innovator. And you just, they're in their little cubby hole lab thing, doing their shit, letting the product speak for themselves or something like that. And like letting other people just talk about the formulas and what's in it. If you have to go out and scream that you are XYZ, chances are you aren't even one iota of what you're claiming to be. I agree. I, I agree. I think, um, you know, the smartest brands these days realize that to have a good brand, it goes beyond just the supplement. Yeah. You have to have a culture. You have to have a content system that draws people to that supplement and keeps them with it. So it could be training programs and app um, and any number of things. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those are the guys that really, you don't hear them talking about quality control, even though they, they have some of the best because I'm, I'm an insider on some of those brands. Right. Um, and, and, but they focus on the positive, right. And, and, and some of these other brands, um, that don't get it right. Like I've been in those like meetings, right. I'm just like, look, it's not just about the formula, right. It's not just about how much shit is in here. It's the impact you're making to your community, to, to, to everyone else. Are they getting the results? Do they feel cool taking it? You know, do they want to wear your t-shirt because they're so fucking proud of this powder. They're going to wear your t-shirt, use your workout program and do all this other shit. And just some people don't get it because they're just like, but my formula, but my formula. It's like, dude, there's more to it than that. Agreed. You could have the best formula on the planet, but if nobody's buying it, it just it doesn't exactly. matter. It doesn't matter. Uh, back up to the nitrates for a second. You said yeah. you were a fan of them. And I think most of the people that yeah. listen to this program have used them in some supplement or other. Um, do you think there's much of a difference to date? More of the research on the benefits of nitrates in regards to exercise performance are done with either beetroot juice or, you know, just giving them like, a, and then there's a few on the amino bound nitrates mm -hmm. and those studies seem a little bit more mixed than the beetroot juice studies themselves are. Do you think there's much of a difference between natural sources of the dietary nitrates versus the amino bound nitrates in terms of the, the uh, real world effects and results that you get from them? I think, um, you know, when it comes to nitrates, there, there are differences between the amino acid versus the, like the beetroot sourced ones, right? Mm -hmm. The beetroot created ones, so to speak, like they, they exist within an extract that is, has a lot of other things besides nitrates that has a lot of uh, polyphenols, antioxidants, a lot of other ingredients. So how it affects your system works a lot differently than the amino bound ones. Right. The amino bound ones also tend to be in these beefed up formulas with a lot of other ingredients that, you know, again, unless you're really doing an endpoint study on that, like multi-ingredient product with nitrates, mm -hmm. it's really hard to say how beneficial X, Y, and Z is to be and to I just isolate the nitrates, yeah. for instance, their effects. So a lot of the beetroot studies 
are done on just beetroot juice. So it doesn't have all these other ingredients which may counter affect the beneficial effect of the nitrate. They actually may enhance it. Um, and that's where I think, you know, I think that's where, where some of the differences may lie, if, if mm -hmm. that helps shed some light on it. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, just because from the listeners that may not understand, like the polyphenols and all the other stuff and that can activate some of the, the nitric oxide synthase enzymes that catalyze the production of it. And it could increase the bioavailability and longevity of it in the bloodstream. And, you know, the, exactly. The exactly. Like I, I, I legitimately think that um, like the like the beetroot, like like regular like beetroot based products um, that mm -hmm. are standardized for nitrates, they might have an easier uh, way of getting in the system and being processed by the system. And I think. The other thing that I guess sort of a gap in formulation um, that I see is, you know, we don't take into account redox state of highly trained athletes, right? So if you're continuously training, 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 your redox state is going to be much different than a normal person, right? Continue. And I do believe beetroot extracts would are going to have an easier time, um, how should I say, um, shifting that balance to a, a positive redox state, or I should say a low redox state in, in act and active athletes, just mm -hmm. for the mere benefit, it doesn't have all these other things working yeah. in tandem with it, or maybe against it. And that's where I sometimes I think, you know, I love nitrates, amino acid nitrates. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, I was the biggest critic. They're awesome. What Ron yeah. and Alex did is amazing. And, and mm -hmm. I'm happy to recommend it in, in, in a lot of formulations, right? Yeah. However, I also think that, and just in general, with some formulations, people aren't really thinking through all the receptor and, like, I guess the nutritional biochem of the formula to really say is anything interacting things with things in here, right? Like, right. like one of the simplest manipulations that you could do with a formula, right? Like we see bioperin used a lot, and now I think it's like astrogen and some of those other ingredients, right? Yeah. Like if if you just we'll use creatine as, as a, as an example, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, one of the easiest ways to help bioavailability of creatine is just add some table salt to it. Yeah. Right. Like, like stupid shit like that. People aren't thinking through those things. And so now we just see bioperin and everything or astrogen and everything or this and everything and that and everything. And it's like, guys, like there's a lot of shit in there. Like, is it really going to have that additive effect? I think sometimes it's 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 going to be counter counteractive. Correct. Yeah. In the uh, podcast we were doing earlier, the final scoop episode we were doing earlier today, we got on the subject of kitchen sink formulas, and I feel like what you that your comment right there kind of feeds into that is like a lot of brands these days just grab a handful of ingredients, throw it against the wall, let's see what sticks, and we're just going to shovel that into the product. And it's, it's like yep. you've got to peel back the layers and kind of understand where yeah, are these things are different hitting on the points. Totally, because like there's there's something I've I've talked about among my friends i'll talk about now like the mm -hmm. art of formulation right the art of formulation is in, in my opinion is having something that moves endpoints like strength endurance okay in a measured manner mm -hmm. better than the single ingredients themselves something that is scalable meaning i can take this from a thousand units to a hundred thousand units and produce it okay mm -hmm. The other aspect is, can I make it taste great? Not good, great. Yeah. Okay, that's hard. And then, will it last for two or three years on a shelf and not turn into a uh, a clump of shit? <laughs> right. So the yeah. 
And then the final part is, can I build a story around it? Right. That's the art of formulation. I think where a lot of formulators go these days is, does it look good on paper? Right. And some of these other things suffer. Right. So if you have these, the harmony of all those elements that I just mentioned, that's what makes a a great formula in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So it may not necessarily be, have the biggest scoop. It may not just taste like perfect candy, although I think everything should. Um, it may not be popular on some of these supplement review sites, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, am I like, am I reaching hundreds of thousands of people with it? Right. Does it taste good? Is it a great formula? Is it stable over time? And does it actually have an impact? I think that's, that's where I think the art of formulation sometimes gets um, lost, um, yeah. you know, and yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's something I'm, you know, I'm guilty of too. And so like, just when we're discussing formulas on the thing, I don't know the whole story of like, I don't know what their target consumer is. I don't know what the brand owners, what their mission statement is when I'm sitting on the podcast and somebody says, well, what do you think of this formula? The only thing I can really go on is because I don't have all that background information is I can say, this is dosed well based on the studies. This isn't dosed well. I don't understand Mm -hmm. why this is in here, but this is just my one-sided view of everything. I don't have all the other factors. Maybe their customers really like feeling that thermogenic effect in their pre-workout. So they're going to put a little GBB or paradoxine or caloriburn or something Mm -hmm. down there. And, you know, that's fine. Those are the caveats you got to put in there. And so it's, we got to remember there's, there's a lot more that goes into it than just the, the label that we see sometimes when we're reviewing something. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, what, what is the experience of the target customer, right? It, it's yeah. going to be different for a lot of different brands. Yeah. I think I know for me, you know, um, even though I've diversified my business and I'm doing like what I would call big data advertising marketing, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think just my market share on Amazon is think around 125 million right now, right? In, ter- in terms of brands, in, ter- in terms of total brand reach, and this is this is not just sports nutrition. Sports nutrition is a small part of it. Yeah. It's actually closer to I think 275 million globally and over 150,000 storefronts, right? So when you look at things from that perspective and saying that things that I'm influencing are reaching that many people, it really starts to reset like the perspective in, in saying like, is something good or not? Right. Yeah. I think this leads into my next thing. Now that you gave me a, a soapbox is like, what's up with these fucking supplement awards? Like <laughs> there's a new one, like every week I'm kind of sitting back. Right. Cause like, it, it, look, it's hard not to be a snob. Right. Because it's yeah. like, all right, fuck man. I've, I've won like brand of the year at GNC or uh, product of the year or, you know, been written about nutrition business journal and you get, you know, like accolades from them or this or that, like you've been asked to speak at conferences and I'm watching like, all right, this brand just won a supplement award by who? And, and it's not to be a dick. It's just like, man, like I'm embarrassed for some of the brands accepting these things the way that they are. Okay. Because it's like, it's just, who's giving the award? Yeah. You no, know, like I'll give it, Stacked awards actually mean something. Shane, what he's built, every brand in the industry respects that site and wants visibility on it. Yep. But some of the up-and-comers, I'm just like, who are you, man? You're, you're just someone that – I mean, look, maybe I'm just being a dick right now, but it is something that I will say that I do talk about with clients, and 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 and, and we're just like wondering, like, where do these awards come from? Right. Like yeah. you should come up with an award, you know, like, I mean, I Get should my come logo up. embossed on the, <laughs> the tub. you know, like 
And I, I think, in my opinion, it, that is somewhat watering down our industry and hurting it, in my opinion, because it, it's just what, what's happening now is like who, whoever is paying for the content on those sites is who's winning the awards, yeah, right? And, 100%. and the brand sort of playing to that and kowtowing that like people see that people yeah. are stupid. You know, no, I don't think so either. And I guess it's it's kind of like I would liken it to the amount of TV shows and crap that is put out on all the different streaming services. So back, you know, even as low, far back as not even as far back, five to ten years ago, they were still quality stuff coming up because there wasn't as much available. But now we've got so many review sites, so many authorities on supplements. Just like we have 15 million goddamn streaming services, you're getting a new brand new show every week. When you're pumping out that much volume, quality is definitely taking a tremendous hit. And the same thing, we have so many companies because there's such a low barrier to entry in the supplement industry. Yep. You're getting all of these copycat formulas and then more watered down stuff. And same thing's happening with supplement awards. Every YouTuber is coming out with one. Every other e-retailer is coming out with one. And they don't mean shit. Well, that, that's the thing. That's where I think I would like to see a little bit of debate in, in, injected into, into the industry. You know, I saw... And I'll leave names out of this, but I saw a review site actually get called out by the president of a brand and said, hey, you have a problem with our formula. You have a problem with how we do business. Why don't you come on our podcast and let's actually discuss it and debate it? And the review site backed down. And I'm thinking like, man, like if you really stood by your position on why you hate this brand or why you always make fun of them, or always talk shit about it. Why wouldn't you want to go on there and actually blast them? Right. Right. I mean, and I think it's just because they don't, because they're just, they're so just used to just talking out and not getting called on their bullshit. Yeah. Right? And I, I really wish, I mean, look, I understand it. Like it's, it's not a good thing to be negative. Um, and, and, and take it from me, who's actually been in a few lawsuits over this. Um, you have to choose your words wisely. But at the same time, I do think that there could be, should be more debate in the industry, especially about awards, who's calling out who, ethics in the industry. I mean, the, the ethical arguments that I see right now, um, I think they're pretty fucking weak, right? There are some pretty big fish to fry when it comes to ethics in the industry. And we're, we're worried about, um, you know, does a brand's brand name look similar to something else that's trademarked, right? Like we're calling out ethics on that. Or we're calling out ethics on um, doses, right? And that's where I think um, I think there needs to be more challenging because, like, for someone like me, right, I spend about twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars a year, embarrassingly, on trying everyone's products, right? Yeah. Not not just not just in sports nutrition, but food, whatever else, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, I want to understand deeper why maybe they did that or just the feeling and the effect. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think sometimes the arms race and the, and the, um, and how sometimes in this review sort of ecosystem, how it's, it's hurting things because yeah. it's training people just to look at things and be like, well, if it's not higher, 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 then it's not that good. Right. right. And the reality is, is when you sort of start chasing that you can't afford innovation. So yeah. it's like, what's the balance? So, yeah, and that's uh, a question I've gotten on uh, from time to time. I'm curious to get your insight since you've formulated for a number of brands over the years. When you're approached by a company, say, hey, I want to do 
any kind of formula. What is your initial mindset? Do you kind of say, hey, no. this is my like my moonshot formula and then you whittle away from here? Or do you have an, an initial discussion with a brand saying, all right, they give you the price point and they say formulate to this roof or like what, what angle do you attack when you're creating a formula? Usually it's no, right? Um, I'll be honest. I, I turned out a lot of brands these days just because, you know, how I've shifted my business, I have to like, what's the likelihood of future success, right? Yeah. And, you know, so I, I truthfully, I don't want to waste my time on a startup these days, unless they have some real innovation and some real financial backing. Yeah. Right. But I think when, if I do come, you know, if a brand does approach me and a lot of times it may come from, I'm running advertising for them or running something and mm -hmm. then they want input. Right. Yeah. A lot of times I don't start with a, a formulation approach. I come up with a data approach of like, how are we going to create a framework of, you know, that captures the, the data that we're looking at that could benefit and be sticky with your target audience, mm -hmm. right? And that that's where it is just, it is a much different approach than to, to instead of saying, wow, okay, Dynamine's popular now, we need that. Right. Or, you know, um, you know, uh, dicaffeine malate is popular now, we have to have that in there. Or glycer pumps in there, we have to have that in there. Right. It's a, it's a much, much different data driven approach. And it really depends on where they want to sell. Um, you know, Amazon's ecosystem is much different than GNC, which is different than vitamin shop, which is different than the D to C wild, wild west and the brick and mortar model pops. So, um, but I'll say this, usually the answer is no. Um, if I just get approached just because, you know, where, where my business is at, like I, I really have to look at the potential of the brand. Um, yeah. And, you know, what's the longevity? Because, look, I see it and, I, and I've learned from mistakes, right? Because I have created great formulas for brands that didn't last. Mm -hmm. And then I just wasted a lot of good potential IP on something that didn't go anywhere. Right. Yeah. What's day-to-day -day, uh, work look like for you these days? If you're not doing as much in the formulation realm, you're doing more IT, marketing, kind of uh, SEO stuff in that way. It's data-driven marketing. Uh, advertising and, and research, truthfully. Um, you know, so day to day, um, you know, I, I usually I get up pretty early. I go work out before I do anything. Um, come home, eat, take the kids to school and come home. And then I have a meeting with my staff. Truthfully, my staff is all over the world. Okay. But we have a set meeting time every day um, and review campaigns, review workloads, project plans, whatever. Um, then I have what I would call like kind of my review time. And I have a lot of different dashboards set up for different things. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of just what I would say, listening tools and big data tools to help me make decisions with what I do. Okay. Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm spending millions of dollars a month now in advertising. Okay. And I think what makes me different than let's say other agencies is because I'm an industry insider and I know, I guess, the social listening side of the business and what sort of motivates like the sports nutrition niche market or the snack market that sort of works with it or the meal prep market that works with it. Um, you know, the, the data approach is what I would say a lot more strategic and more sniper-like. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I, I probably spend about half my day reviewing that data um, or building the frameworks for new clients, truthfully. Um, and yeah, that's what I spend a lot of my time doing, honestly. And then 
you know, having meetings um, with the brands I work with, um, mostly at the C level or VP level. Um, I do get down and dirty with some of the staff if it's training them, truthfully. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, that's a lot of my time. That's a lot of my day. Um, and then, you know, everyone comes home. We have some family time. I go to jujitsu. I'm very fortunate. I train, you know, with, with uh, the Gracie family. And uh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, that's that's, really cool. that's badass that you get to train with the Gracies. That's uh, yeah. I mean, like that's for the people that have no idea about martial arts in general. That's I'd be like here. That's upper echelon right there. Yeah, like, yeah, the yeah, yeah. I get to train under Henzo and Hollis Gracie. You know, it's like you know if you know anything about jujitsu or the UFC, that's kind of like loyalty. Yes. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I I will say this: like people ask, like Dan, how do you have time to do everything you do? Um, I think the big thing is I don't get caught up in the scroll on social media. I think the other thing is because I'm a data guy and I understand, you know, um, how manipulative social media can be. I actually try to stay off of it. I do post, I do have a presence, mm -hmm. but I also understand how the algorithms draw you in. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, so I don't waste time there. Okay. Yeah. I don't waste time, uh, watching TV. It's not to say if you watch TV, you're wasting time. It's just, uh, you know, I, I prefer, you know, um, spending free time, you know, either with my family or reading up on new ingredients or looking at like some of my data scrapes and seeing, you know, what's come about to see if there's any, you know, new potential ingredients or new applications of old ingredients that have, yeah. you know, never really been used, yeah. you know, so there's, there's a lot of that out there. Fascinating. All right. Um, I'll get you out of here on this, Dan. What does uh, your daily supplement regimen consist of if it varies a little bit from day to day but we can like high level what would you what's a typical day in the life um typical day in the life when i train in the morning uh truthfully it is um man it depends okay it, like full disclosure um even though flavor matters flavor to me doesn't matter so a lot of times i'll have uh coffee i'll throw egg white protein into it and i'll either throw in on an alpha brain which makes no sense from a flavor perspective or um, ghosts, uh, nootropic powder, the Christian Guzman. Um, I forget what it's called actually. The gamer one? Are you talking about ghost gamer or is it? No. The, um, the one that comes in the black bottle. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't even, I don't even, I don't even know what it's called. I just want it when, whenever they have a sale, I buy a lot of it. I really like the yeah. acetyl carnitine. So that's why I use it. Same here. So that's what I'll take in the morning, like pre-training. Um, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll come home um, and when I have breakfast, I'll have ubiquinol. I'll have uh, actually uh, some supplemental copper, um, which will make sense like we'll discuss it with my nighttime stuff. Um, I'll have a probiotic and then also have a pre four pro uh, prebiotic. And then, you know, throughout the day um, I may have, like I'm doing so much what I would say trying things um, that it could be random energy drinks, random, whatever okay yeah. a lot of random proteins truthfully just because always trying new things and then pre-bed um i actually do like zma not because i think it boosts testosterone i think it just has a great whack of magnesium which if you're an active athlete you should be getting double the rda um, so you get a, a, a solid dose of magnesium and obviously a solid dose of zinc um and that's why i take copper in the morning because too much zinc will lead you um, I'll also have uh, fish oil and I'm trying to think what else. Um, oh, NAC. So I probably have a, a decade's worth of NAC. 
as well. Yeah, that's what. How much do you take a day? Because I've got I've got tubs of it, and I take between six hundred to twelve hundred a day, just depending on what I'm if I'm okay. doing a scoop or if it's another pre workout. Yeah, I'll take twelve hundred. Twelve hundred. Yeah, it's good stuff. Got to keep that liver functioning. Now, on on what I would say, uh, strength training days where I'm doing strength training, let's say in the middle of the day, mm-hmm. I'll have a I'll have a pre workout. Um, I don't like things that are overly stimmed, mm-hmm. um, but I also can't say what I use because it'll piss a lot of people off. <laughs> Uh, let's just say this, it, it does have, you know, it is dosed well. Um, it does have backing research and truthfully, sometimes I'll throw in, um, additional acetyl carnitine or on an alpha brain on, on top of it. Excellent. Awesome, Dan. Well, I've, I've kept you a little over an hour. I hope that wasn't too long, but I, no. I truly, truly enjoyed this conversation. It was a long time coming. And based on what we said, it seems like we need to have at least another episode or two. Yeah, and, for sure. Uh, <laughs> we're going to do this again because you are a wealth of knowledge. And uh, maybe we can get a third party on here to uh, can have some healthy debate on a couple of subjects at, at a future sure. thing, too. I welcome it. Awesome. Uh, anything else you want to shamelessly plug or discuss before uh, we put a bonus? No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good, man. I don't, I don't need to plug anything. I think, um, you know, just for all of you out there, um, you know, hopefully I can open your minds a little bit, um, you know, to, you know, as an actual industry insider, that's actually actively involved in a, in a number of brands, um, you know, in sports nutrition, but also just in what I would say, big food and big in the big supplement world. So there's levels to the game. And I, I think I'm at the top. Outstanding. Awesome, Dan. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we'll talk soon. Awesome. Thanks, Robert.